welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Luminos and HelpSpot. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined in the flesh by my co-host, Jason Snell. It is me in the flesh. We are here at a table. I can see the sparkle in your eye. Mm, it's of, a glint of a, space. A thousand supernovas. Space. Of love. Yes. Supernovas of love. That's a <laughs> love explosion. <laughs> yeah, we're in Portland, Oregon for the XOXO Festival, and, you know, it's fun to record podcasts in person. And the last time I saw you, you couldn't speak, so it's nice to have you here with your voice this time. It's true. Uh, so we're at a kitchen table in an Airbnb, and we're just going to do liftoff together. This is the most podcast thing ever. So, pop <laughs> Airbnbs and podcasts. Yeah, there's a refrigerator in Portland, Oregon. There's a refrigerator right there behind me. How much hipstery could can we get? Not much more. Pre-flight checklist. Oh yeah, let's do it. Let's start with uh, Juno, the mission to Jupiter. It has made its first of two close, fast passes of the planet before settling into its regular science orbits. And we have some photos. Yeah, there was the, this. It was, you know, it made the close pass, and it was strange because we sort of didn't see any pictures for a while. Right. And then finally, they they came out with some pretty awesome pictures, including really angles that we have not seen before of Jupiter because it's got this polar orbit. Right. So we saw images of the, the North Pole, which are very different than the sides of the planet we normally see, the the bands and stripes and everything not, not present at the North Pole. It's... um. Totally different, kind of a blue-green look. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look like what you think of as Jupiter, although some of those photos are really amazing because you, you see the thing that you don't think is Jupiter, and then you look further down and like, oh, the red mm-hmm. spot's down there. So it's just a new view on Jupiter, which is uh, that's pretty great. Um, and it doesn't have a hexagon. Right, like Saturn. Right, Saturn's got a really weird hexagonal uh, storm at, the, at its north pole. And uh, it like it, you should see it <laughs> if you haven't if you don't know about the hexagon at the pole of of Saturn it's amazing um, but Jupiter does not have that as far as we can tell. There's also image uh, an infrared image of the southern uh, southern pole looking at the auroras looking at this uh, this interference between the solar wind and the charged particles streaming away from Jupiter's atmosphere really uh, stunning stunning look again that we don't get here on Earth. Yeah, um, these are these are things that we can't see except by sending probes, and now we wait for more because it's going to be another what fifty some odd days, I think, before it makes its its next close pass, and then I believe enters its mission orbits. Yep. So we will uh, we'll check back in uh, as always. Um, we got a little n- news about Rosetta as well. Did you, did you see this? Yes, I did. So the Rosetta mission, as you may remember, was um, to look at Comet 67P. It has a longer name, but 67P is the shorthand name. And it was basically a spacecraft and a lander. And well, the lander didn't really do so well. No, it uh, well it landed, <laughs> and- uh, but it it uh, seemed to land in a in a province and lander's called uh, Philae. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have landed in a bad location. Um, it, it, it bounced. Uh, it has solar panels. And it seemed to end up like somewhere dark, like in a crevasse somewhere. 
Or like you said, it it crashed and went in a ditch. It crashed into a ditch. (laughs) So Rosetta really only has a couple of weeks left of of mission life expectancy. Yeah. And it will then crash into the comet. Yeah, they're going to get some close images from Rosetta, which is exciting because they're going to be able to take it in close and then they will eventually, yeah, just actually hard land it on the comet. But Philea, it was lost. No one knew where it had ended up because it was basically in this ditch, this covered covered rock cropping, basically. No solar power. It had come back online briefly in 2015, but not enough to really pinpoint its location. But Rosetta uh, got a really clear image of it in a recent past, and it, it's kind of sad looking. Just kind of laying there on its side. And, and uh, its legs sticking up in the, yeah. uh, in, not in the air, because there's no air, but up, up out of the rocks yeah. and it's like been tipped over and it's definitely in a ditch. It's that's, it's that's why we lost track of it. Crashed and burned. Yeah. Well, it didn't burn bounced and crashed. It's cool though that they found it because that was, I, I don't know if you looked at, at those pictures, but the cropped one, you can totally see that that's the lander. Oh yeah. But when you look at the, like the source pictures that they were pouring over, it's like yeah, how they, it's, it's amazing. It's a they, tiny little speck. Yeah. Um, so we should talk about the SpaceX deal. Ooh, man. The, yeah. So SpaceX had a problem. Yeah. It wasn't on launch. They were doing a, t- a test, which is a test of the propulsion, the static fire, mm-hmm. they call it, where they don't take off, but they fire the engines. It's right. something SpaceX does. It was in preparation of that. They weren't even to that point yet. They were just basically fueling up. Yeah, the rocket. Yeah, yeah, they weren't they weren't even at the static fire yet, and this is days before they were going to launch a satellite, and um, then there was a huge explosion. <laughs> yeah, SpaceX keeps calling it a fireball, and if you if so, well, there'll be if you haven't seen the video, there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, it doesn't explode in the sense that there's debris flying out at a high rate of speed. It basically is a giant fireball, and then you can see the top part of the rocket with the the fairing and all the the, the atmos 6 the actual satellite they're going to launch fall to the ground and it definitely explodes yeah yeah it's um it's pretty it's, wild it's spectacular it really is spectacular and there's there's um a couple versions of the video there's a video where where um you move i actually did this myself um too but somebody also has posted there's video where they sync it up so the sound delay is removed mm-hmm. so you can actually sort of hear the explosions as they're happening because in fact all these cameras the camera that saw it was was far away right and so there's a long sound delay but then you can actually hear like you can hear the explosion when the when the fairing and the the satellite inside explodes separately from the initial thing yeah. that happened toward the top of the rocket mm-hmm. um it was a uh, rapid, unexpected disintegration, right? Disassembly. Disassembly. Yeah, R-U-D. Uh, even better. RUD. Uh, so no injuries during this this testing and the static fire everything. The pad is cleared, so no injuries. But there's there are a bunch of unknowns coming out of this, right? So this happened at Launch Pad Complex 40, where the Falcon 9s have been taking off uh, in Florida. SpaceX take the investigation off the table for a second they can launch um in california which we've spoken about before from uh Van- vandenberg vandenberg which is fine if you're in a polar orbit but you can't reach the space station from there 40 has got to be damaged i mean looking at the pictures that then later that day the um there's damage to the strongback tower which is basically the tower the rocket is attached to until until moments before liftoff it's going to take some time to clean all that up and to rebuild it 
SpaceX does lease 39A, which of course is a historic launch site um, at Kennedy, where we're talking uh, Apollo missions, the first Saturn V, a bunch of space shuttle missions, all from 39A. That is being renovated for the Falcon Heavy, and it can support the Falcon 9, but it's not going to be done until the end of the year. Of course, none of that really matters until they understand what happened. Well, what happened? Yeah, that that's the that's the thing is that there's there's so much going on here. So there's a satellite that was lost. That this was the the uh, Facebook Mark Zuckerberg's Internet dot org. It was mm-hmm. going to provide internet to people in Africa, and it was insured. Actually, and and that's a that's a weird um, angle too. Is these spacecraft get insured for launch failures. Right. But this isn't a launch failure. And it turns out they had a second insurance policy, which was for damage while it was on the ground. And that's the policy that they'll cash in, which yeah. I have lots of questions about insuring things that are going to be fired by mm-hmm. rockets and how you do that and what the, how you calculate it's the rate. Not a business I want to be in. No, <laughs> no. So there's that. And then there's this, uh, the launch pad question, which is, can how far does this push SpaceX behind? Right. How, how how far do they have to push back their schedule because they may not have any place that they are capable of launching from any right. su- anytime right. soon? Say that they're cleared to return to launch tomorrow, they can't launch from Florida because 39A is not done yet, and and so inter- any international supply like resupply missions they can't do. Right. And um. So NASA said, you know, the the space station, unlike last summer where we were in the situation where the Falcon 9 blew up at during ascent, well, my my Falcon your, 9. Your mission, yeah. Um, and then there were, you know, other issues going on. It's not that. The space station has plenty of supplies. They were fine last time, too, but it was kind of getting to the point of, like, maybe we need to get a mission going here. But it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause problems for them and their, and their commercial... You know, this was a paid launch. They had the launch of the reused Falcon 9 scheduled for later this fall. Right. That'll be pushed back to who knows when. So, And and on top of all that, there is this other issue of what happened. Because this, right. this was, you know, it, it wasn't a failure at a launch and it wasn't a failure during the firing. It was a failure before the firing. And that's unusual. Yes. And um, did I see that Elon Musk is like trying to find people who took video of mm-hmm. it so they're like they're still they're trying to get more video of this yeah. to figure out what's going on so, so they're still trying to figure it out so musk called it um the most complex failure investigation of the company's 14-year history spacex you know musk sometimes just goes on twitter and says what he wants but spacex like the official pr line is if you have footage that you haven't shared please share it there's questions of did this failure happen within the upper stage of the rocket? When you look at the video, it it looks almost like it happens at the surface or even outside of the rocket. Yeah. And so, was there some issue with the fueling system? Was there some sort of leak that ignited? They don't seem to know yet, and it's going to take time to sort all that out. And the you know the big question here, even beyond SpaceX's own business, is what does it mean for commercial crew? There was a report out from from the. Uh, NASA administrator's office, I think, two or three weeks ago, saying commercial crew is a little behind. It's coming in over budget. Right. Shocking. Yeah, uh, I know. And this is not going to help that. SpaceX is one of the two companies working on commercial crew hardware and, and missions. Now, one of the things that uh, has come up in in relationship to this is the idea that um, what does it mean if you've got 
you know, you've got rockets blowing up. That's really bad. And that's extra bad if you have people right. sitting at the top of it. However, something to keep in mind is I believe I saw a story that said they ran the... Um, I think somebody ran the simulation of the commercial crew escape system. Right. And the idea here is that if there had been people on this... Well, first off, there wouldn't have been in this scenario or not in the filling yeah, because but. it was. But if this had happened before a launch, right. that the commercial crew escape system should actually function to save the crew, right? In this, it would be they'd eject, you know, and the, the, unfortunately, the satellite doesn't have the emergency <laughs> satellite rescue system right. because it's kind of too heavy. But um, but for people. There's a you know they 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 basically eject the 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 capsule the dragon yeah um and it rockets off to the side yep. and they are they are safe so they probably would have been safe right even uh, if this explosion or fireball or whatever had happened with people sitting at the top right. of the rocket SpaceX did that uh, those tests I think two years ago now there's footage you can find of it basically. Basically, the capsule has a series of rockets around the top, and it pulls it away from the stack. But, um, you know, it's it's two rockets in, in a little over a year, a year and a half or so. They've got to get it worked out. Yeah. Um, it is, um, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, where the cards fall with all this other stuff. They had, they had a busy schedule with in their private business, a busy schedule with a commercial crew. And, you know, stuff like this definitely happens as part of the process to a degree, but at the same time... To that close is a little something to worry about a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're 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 so ambitious with all the stuff that they're doing with the with the with the Falcons, but you know, are they moving too fast? Are are there or is this just the nature of things? Which honestly, you know, this is this is rocket science. <laughs> it is. You can see I saw somebody's comment of the video, and I think it was really good. Is how much energy does it require to get something into space? And it's like, that's what exploded. That was all of the energy required to get something to space of that weight going off at once. At once, over like 20 seconds. And and they were fueling, not even quite all of it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was just, you know, it was was early in the morning. I was, you know, online working and I saw a couple of space reporters that I follow basically saying, holy cow. And there's no Mm -hmm. details, right? There was... Couple pictures on Twitter. Some got pulled down from NASA employees. I guess NASA PR came around and said, "Hey, uh, pull that back." Um, of this, this huge, you know, column of black smoke rising from the uh, from the platform. But I guess we'll see where it goes. Yeah, yeah. So it's bad. It's uh, bad stuff for SpaceX right now. Um, the Osiris Rex mission is what we're going to be talking about today. It was housed about a mile away mm-hmm. from from. Um, from launch complex 40 so it was safe that was one of the first things nasa looked like they were doing were verifying that there was no debris or any damage to that vehicle and now we know since that it it launched it's basically fine. perfectly <laughs> um but even that was a was a concern because you have a lot of really sensitive stuff and a mile away is not really that far when you look at how big this explosion was so we're gonna get into that but jason do you want to tell us about our first sponsor i do this episode brought to you again by our good friends at Luminos. Luminos is an app for your iPhone, your iPad, combines the most advanced astronomy features on mobile with the careful craftsmanship found in the very best iOS apps. It's also on your 
Apple Watch if you've got one of those. Uh, if you're a serious astronomer who wants to study the largest catalog of stars and deep space images on mobile, Luminos has the tools you need for that. But if you're a casual astronomy enthusiast who wants to fly to a faraway comet or asteroid, let's say, land on a moon one that's been drafted, perhaps, or simulate a solar eclipse like the one we're going to have next year. Luminos makes exploring space stuff fun. Meteor showers, satellites, telescope mount control, a whole lot more. It's all included in one integrated app. Luminos is built on an advanced simulation engine that's been more than 10 years in the making. It's continually optimized for the newest features of the iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch. And it includes everything for one price. There's no in-app purchase. You buy the app. That's it. There are no annoying ads. You buy it. You get it. You keep it. Wobbleworks is the company that makes Luminos, and they are continuing their tradition of free feature updates. Version 9.1 adds beautiful translucent terrain, multiple sky orientations, a stunning model of Comet 67P, a theoretical position for Planet 9, and much more. You can find video screenshots and more details at Wobbleworks.com and find Luminos in the App Store. Thanks to Wobbleworks. So, Cyrus Rex. It's a fun, it's a fun acronym. Osiris Rex. Yes, as as ridiculous mission acronyms go, this one's pretty cool. It's like a you got your Egyptian god, and then there's also Rex, your uh, d- Egyptian dog, maybe, or friendly <laughs> green plastic dinosaur. Could be copyright. Disney that's Pixar. that's right. So we, we talked about Osiris Rex basically in passing a couple of weeks ago, and we mm-hmm. thought it'd be time to revisit it. They had a successful launch just a couple of days ago. Sort of the TLDR of this is that it will travel to a near-Earth asteroid called Bennu. It was 1999 RQ-36, but now it's got a friendlier name, Mm -hmm. thankfully. Good. Um, That's good marketing. It will take a sample, and it will return to Earth uh, 2023. So let's talk a little bit about that timeline, what stands between us today and our follow-up in 2023. Right. So it launched on September uh, 8th atop United Launch Alliance, Atlas rocket, their their workhorse rocket we spoke about a couple weeks ago. Um, it's not a, a huge spacecraft, 20 feet long, 8 feet wide, and 10 feet tall. We were kind of guessing how much of our Airbnb it would take up if it were here last night. Yeah, I think it would fit in this room. It's not a, not, not that big. Yep. It will orbit the sun uh, for a year, and then it will come back by the Earth for a gravitational assist on its way out to the asteroid. And in August 2018... It will begin to uh, approach Bennu, and it will basically use an array of small thrusters to catch up and then slow down to match the speed of the asteroid. So it's going to kind of come in next to it and then begin to orbit the asteroid itself. It's going to orbit for over a year, just in a mapping phase. So we Mm. don't know where the sample is going to be taken from yet, because we only have distant not great imagery of this yeah, thing it's like a fuzzy rock that's right. all we know right now we gotta we gotta look closer so they're going to do detailed Im- imagery for over a year and they're going to select several possible sites and then begin to whittle those down to a final site and then we will be looking at actually making the sample itself you can talk about this this is wild to me yeah so it's not what you think like it's not like it lands and then a little rover goes out and scoops some dirt up and (laughs) puts it in a bag and brings it back to the ship and then the ship takes off that's not what happens Um, it will touch the surface it will it will make a, a very soft landing and extend an arm 
So it does. There is a sampling arm mm-hmm. on this thing. That is probably what you imagined, uh, but it doesn't scoop or anything or dig or anything like that. Jackhammer an asteroid. <laughs> Instead, it blows nitrogen onto the surface, and the idea there is that it does this five second. Well, it, it is. It's in contact for five seconds, and basically, it's just kind of kissing the asteroid, and it goes. Psh- Blows the nitrogen, which causes the rocks and surface soil to be stirred up. And there's a sampler head there at the sampling arm, and it will capture what gets blown up. Now, keeping in mind there's essentially no gravity in this situation. You're out in space. It's the surface of an asteroid. So the idea here is that nitrogen gas should be enough for us to to blow a bunch of stuff up into the sampling head. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have enough nitrogen blasts that they can do that thing three times. And uh, the go- the goal is to collect something between, and this is a really wide range, between two and seventy ounces, so sixty and two thousand grams. It's a pretty wide variance there. Um, they are worried a little bit that if you blow too much, it could like coat the sensors and the solar panels <laughs> in dust, which would be that's a lot of nitrogen. But I think that's a pretty clever idea that they're. Um, Rather than trying to do something where they've got tools and they're abrading a rock or something like that, they figure right. they can just blow this nitrogen blast and that will get debris that they can collect that's just kind of hanging out on the surface of the asteroid. Right. And and this asteroid's not a particularly big rock. And so even if you had a spacecraft that was flexible enough to land and you know, do all the things you talked about, it's not a big target and you risk a bunch of things on a smaller rock. This rock was actually chosen specifically for its size we're gonna get into asteroids in general a little bit later but the size of the asteroid and the rate at which it rotates are linked and so you can't do this on an asteroid that's spinning so quickly that it is throwing off dust and debris on its own because then your space is going to get all beat up and so this thing is big enough where it has enough mass to hold dust to its surface but you want to be in that butter zone where you can just blow some air you know it's high speed air, but to blow nitrogen gas at it to break it free, you got to kind of be right in that zone of how tight is this dust being held to the surface and what it's made out of, so it can be broken up easily. So all that's gonna going to happen in March of 2021. The departure window will open, and the spacecraft will begin its trip back to Earth in September of 2023. The return capsule will land in the desert of Utah hopefully intact, Yeah. Uh, with that sample um, inside. And this is hard. This is what we talked about on the, on, on the most recent show, I think, is that we've done comet returns, mm-hmm. and those were hard. Um, returning stuff is hard, right? We, we send probes out. They right. don't come back. Right. Right? That, that's the di- when you're exploring the solar system. Um, it's a one-way trip. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so... You've got to bring your propellant to return home with you, mm-hmm. and and you've got to bring enough propellant to uh, to propel that return propellant. So mm-hmm. you have to you have to carry a lot more fuel with you. Yep. There's just it, it it complicates matters dramatically. In this case, they also have a la- a second launch window essentially where they have to um, come back to Earth in a certain period of time. So it's really complicated. And this is why sample return missions don't happen. And and you know, samples are important, right? The the moon rocks um 
have told us lots of things about not just the moon, but the era of heavy bombardment and the formation of the solar system. Mm-hmm. Moon rocks have told us a lot of stories that uh, just looking at samples on Earth can't do. Um, it's the reason why people pour over like uh, ice fields in Antarctica looking for uh, meteorites mm-hmm. because some of those meteorites, you know, those are examples of asteroid bits and comet bits and even like bits of Mars blasted off the surface of Mars and landing eventually on Earth. So, you know, sampling can be incredibly important, but it's so hard. And that's what makes Osiris Rex so exciting is that, you know, we're going to get fresh stuff right, right from an asteroid. And the asteroids are thought to be, you know, building blocks of the solar system left over from the beginning of the solar system. So it's important stuff to gather. And we, we've we never had it before. So it's pretty exciting, even if we have to wait seven years to get it. Right. And if they come in at the higher end of that range of material that they're hoping to gather, it would be the largest sample return excluding the moon rocks mm. and so these comet returns and stuff that have happened in the past there's only a couple of them uh, and they were just kind of sticking out an aerogel and gathering little bits of dust right. in the aerogel and then flying it back so, it so was, this it was pretty small could be a significant amount of material compared to that yeah um for two years the return will be cataloged and sampled and some initial analysis will take place uh, at the end of the day, 75% of the material will be returned to NASA Johnson in Houston for further research as things come up and storage for future science. So uh, the moon rocks are the same way. You know, there were studies done when they were returned. Some stuff has come up between now and then of new processes or new tests that would want to be run. But then you store these things in a way that if 50 years from now or 100 years from now, a scientist comes along and says, hey, we have this new technology, something new that we can try with these. And those samples are preserved. And right. so OSIRIS-REx will hopefully be giving back to the scientific community. For It could be for generations to come. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is, it is cool. It is, it's a different kind of mission than we usually talk about here because we talk a lot about flying people into orbit and we talk a lot about taking pictures of stuff that's out there. Yeah. Stuff. And this <laughs> is uh, not that. This is, this is a totally different kind of mission yeah. and it's exciting. I think so. It's also a reminder for me, you know, we talked about this with the New Horizons mission that the building blocks of that mission happened over a decade ago, um, even before then, and then it launched, and then it's traveling for a long time, and seven years is a long time, but in another way, it is a compressed mission that it is, because it's this near-Earth object, um, you can get to it, you can sample, and you can come back, but even then, you're talking about a large chunk of somebody's career mm-hmm. to study this and, yeah. and to, to stay dedicated. So I always like that reminder that the people who are working on this scientists, engineers, um, these mission specialists, all these people, they're putting decades of work into a mission. And, um, this one I'm, I'm excited about, like you said, because it is so different. Yeah. It's going to yeah. be cool. So stay tuned. That'll be on episode like 340 <laughs> of liftoff. We'll tell you all about what they found. There you go. Um, so we're going to talk about um, asteroids in general a little bit and why this one in particular got picked. Um, but first, I want to tell you about HelpSpot, our second sponsor. If you deal with any kind of customer support, you need HelpSpot. It is a comprehensive and flexible help desk software. With HelpSpot, you can let your customers reach you however they choose. Email, web, phone, it doesn't matter because HelpSpot is a central place for all of your customer support needs. You can turn disjointed email exchanges into meaningful conversations. You can see quick trends. So if, if you have a, a certain type of support item really bubble up, you can 
see that trend and see in advance and get out ahead of it. There's real-time reporting to see exactly how your support team is is managing their workload. And it really just has everything you need. You can even create a self-service portal for your customers uh, with knowledge-based articles then go in and help themselves. HelpSpot is committed to giving you unrivaled value for your hard-earned money. Put simply, this means uncomplicated pricing that includes everything you need for your help desk. With HelpSpot, you get unlimited tickets, mailboxes, custom fields, reports, knowledge-based articles, and more. All for one simple price with no hidden extras or complicated tiers. HelpSpot's current customers include startups and Fortune 500 companies, IT departments, call centers, customer service groups from across a wide range of industries. And it's not a flash-in-the-pan company. HelpSpot has been doing this for over 12 years. They're going to be there when you need them. HelpSpot is free for up to three users and inexpensive for large teams. Better still, if you will get an additional 10% off for the life of your account if you use the code LIFTOFF when you sign up. So go to HelpSpot.com slash LIFTOFF to start a free trial today or sign up for a free one-on-one demo to learn more about HelpSpot and serve your support team. Thank you so much to HelpSpot for the support of this show and all of Relay FM. Yay. Asteroids. You know, I love asteroids, uh, especially when you hit the hyperspace button and your ship disappears for a little bit and then it comes back somewhere else on the screen and then you go and you blow up all the asteroids. That's not really what I had planned on talking about, but it is a fun game. I mean, you want to talk about Pong? <laughs> mm, let's talk about asteroids. Okay, so the hyperspace button, <laughs> and you have the thrust button, and then you got the fire button. So, asteroids are objects in the solar system that orbit the sun. Oh, those asteroids. Those. Oh, okay. They're not big enough to be considered planets. Some of the bigger ones are dwarf planets, kind of. That nomenclature is real yeah. fuzzy. It's, it's, it's a gradient. Be, and, and there's this question of, like, can you be both an asteroid and yeah. a minor planet? Yes, apparently. We'll tell you. You apparently. can. <laughs> um, and many of them aren't actually solid objects, but sort of clumped together rubble piles. Yeah. Yeah, this is probably a good uh, point to say that if all you know about asteroid belts is what you saw in Star Wars. I love I love Star Wars. Not super accurate on the scientific front. But asteroid belts are not big rubble fields right. that you have to dodge around. There, the belt is huge. is is controlled by gravity. It's largely Jupiter's gravity mm-hmm. that's kind of holding it where it is, and it's a zone. Think of it as a zone. Um, so the belt, the belt is not a belt that is full of things. It's a zone of Jupiter's gravity dominating, keeping this stuff from doing anything else. And in it, there's some junk floating around, yep. but it, its space is vast. And it's mostly empty. And so if you were in the middle of the thickest part of the asteroid belt, you wouldn't see anything. <laughs> right. Because it's space. So yeah. just, just to make that clear, because I think it's so fun to think of it as this field where you have to dodge all the rocks. Yeah. And it's like there are things that it's just sort of like rubble stuff floating there but even then the the rubble clumps together right and the point is that if you landed on it you know it it would be not much fun to land on it because it really is just kind of like dust and rocks all kind of clumped and collisions can happen but they're exceedingly rare very rare because space is big and stuff is small 
Yeah, so let's talk about some of the the sizing. Um, the largest we're talking about is really only about a thousand kilometers across. Yeah, would you say that Ceres is like the fortieth largest body in the solar system, yeah. or something like that? And it's by far the largest asteroid. Right. It's a third of the mass of the entire asteroid belt is Ceres. Ceres is a fun. Uh, body because it is a dwarf planet. It's the only dwarf planet, minor planet that is inside in the inner solar system is inside of uh, Uranus and Neptune orbit that that uh, we've got Pluto and Eris and other things that are out in the far out. But Ceres is also qualifies as a dwarf planet. It's so large that it's round. It's its mass has has uh, crushed it down to be a, a nice round mm-hmm. ball. Um, it is uh, for at least fifty years, if not more. It was taught as one of the planets mm-hmm. in the solar system before they realized that it was part of this larger collection of small bodies called the asteroid belt. So for a while, Ceres was a planet and lost its status. So if you think uh, Pluto's got it bad, uh, talk to Ceres because yeah. it it got it even worse. Um, but it is a dramatically. Uh, larger body than anything else that's in the the in the asteroid belt and we and we know a lot of stuff about it because we sent dawn dawn to check it out and dawn the spacecraft saw like super reflective bits that they think i it's 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 a kind of an optical illusion because i think it's just like another material that's Mm -hmm. more reflective than the uh, the material around it but um, it was it was kind of fun to see that body close up because again you know it's just not a place we had we'd ever been before right and and from a distance away it's very hard to see what's going on in Ceres yeah. so Ceres is the big one its um, next closest sibling is Vesta at 525 kilometers across it is the brightest asteroid visible from Earth yeah asteroids are a, a mixed bag they're like um, Think of like a bag of marbles or something like that. It's like right. they're not all the same kind. They're they're right. so Vesta's got this high albedo, which is the term. I don't know if we've used that on this podcast before, but it's the term for reflectivity of an object. Like an albedo of one, I believe, is com- like completely reflective, like a big right. mirror, and a, an albedo of zero would be you can't see it. It doesn't right. reflect any light at all. Then th- and and so this is an example where Vesta is really bright. Um, because it's it's more reflective, it's lighter, and so we can see it, even though it's not the biggest. We can see it really clearly. We have uh, Pallas at 512 kilometers across. Yes, yeah, similar size to Vesta, and uh, it's weird. It's it's um, the article I read about it said it it's hard to get to. Don't try to. Um, we we wouldn't send a, a sample return mi- mission to Vesta or to Pallas because Pallas is uh, like Pluto. Actually, it's in this really eccentric orbit that's weirdly inclined out of the plane of the solar system. But um, but it's still it's still big. Um, and then there's Hygieia, which is actually the fourth one. And you you may not have heard about it, um, but it's 430 kilometers in diameter. What's interesting about Hygieia is it's really dark. So it's not well known, and it it took a long a lot longer to spot it because it's a very dark asteroid, um, lots of uh, carbonaceous stuff on right. the surface, and so it doesn't reflect light as well. So it's harder to find. Yep, even though it's a big, still a pretty big rock. So you, you may have heard the term meteoroid in this conversation. They have a diameter less than a meter. So we're talking. We talk small objects. We're talking. Small objects. Yeah, those are meteoroids. You could put that in the back of a pickup truck. Exactly. But these asteroids, they're bigger. They're bigger. Um, there are millions of these objects. They're still being discovered, especially these smaller ones. It's really hard to see. 
most, like you said, are between Mars and Jupiter in the asteroid belt. Asteroids that share an orbit with a planet or moon are called trojans, and they're often at the Lagrange four or five points. Right, so it's it's uh, the orbitally stable location that's out in front of a planet's orbit or behind a planet's orbit where there's a resonance that happens where they're able to sort of stay and, and cluster in those locations. So when we talked about sending one of the missions that is possibly going to be funded from NASA was to look at the Jupiter Trojan That's asteroids, right. which are not in the asteroid belt. They are following or or leading Jupiter, Jupiter around. There are three main types, we hinted at this a second ago, based on composition, because, because asteroids are more or less left over from the beginning of the solar system, they are made up of different types of things. So you have the C-type, which is carbon-rich, and that's like Hygieia. That's the that's why it's so dark is mm-hmm. that it's got that dark carbon stuff on the surface. As well as Osiris Rex uh, asteroid, oh, yeah, is a is a C type. You have M type, which is metallic. These are tend to be um, more reflective. I think they also tend to be smaller than the others. And then you have uh, S type for silicate or stony. So one's most, mostly made out of out of rock and other debris. So maybe asking yourself, Jason, what is a comet if it's not an asteroid? What's the difference? Well, uh, comets are ice balls, mm-hmm. and generally they come from way, way out in the outer solar system rather than being like hanging out in the asteroid belt. Gold star today! Yay! Yeah, I'm also I, I'm looking at the answer here. It's it in, is in, it's it in is your in, notes, it but is in the notes. but the comets comets are they're they're coming from like the Kuiper belt or the. Oort cloud, they're like way, way out, and then they and they come in very quickly, and then they go back out. Yep, they get they get flung in and then flung back out. Yeah, maybe never to return, or maybe they'll return periodically. And they're ice balls, and that's why they have the long tails. Is that the uh, the ice is the primary thing that they've got, and they it, it gets pushed off by the solar wind, and as they heat up, uh, and it gets kind of boiled off behind it as it comes in, but. Uh, these are, you know, rock and ice and metals in the... They they really are kind of like rocks. It is a good way to think of asteroids is that they're big clumps of rock. And they might be more carbon-ish rocks or they may be super metallic rocks. And it's all, you know, the idea here is that where do they come from is it's the formation of the solar system. They didn't get, you know, end up somewhere with a clump that got big enough to attract more clumps and more clumps until it formed a planet. They didn't get sucked in by a planet. And so on that level, you know, we're looking at potentially this is stuff from the interstellar medium, basically, that was that that ended up being the nebula that ended up forming our sun and solar system. And which means it's like leftovers from stars past that never got put into a big object. They just it's it's the extras. It's like the sawdust or something like that of the construction project. <laughs> so um, that's and they and you know they bang into each other and they get moved around by other planets. And if the planets in our solar system moved around during the early time of the solar system, they would have been affected by that. Um, and the presence of Jupiter is thought to be one of the reasons too. That in addition to having its Trojans and things like that, that Jupiter because it's so huge that it sort of has an effect to shepherd this ring, and they the, these objects can't go in closer or or further out. The, right. the ones that are in the asteroid. There's belt. a balance there. Yeah, that's gravity. This is why this OSIRIS-X mission is so exciting. Potentially that this asteroid Bennu is believed to be carbon rich. 
and it's essentially a flying time machine from this four billion, four and a half billion years ago when the solar system was being formed. And hopefully, it holds answers to what was that original material like. Mm-hmm. What was the what were the chemicals and uh, the makeup that was available at the time? And this all could lead to answers about maybe even how life was formed. Is there something in this carbon-rich material that we think led to us eventually? It has Bennu has a diameter of about two hundred meters, so that kind of puts it in place with these others that we're talking about. Yeah, it's small. Um, it's basically as small as you can get without a spin that's too fast to deal with. And um, it's and and unlike we were talking about the asteroid belt, th- this is a we said near Earth. How near is uh, you know? It's how it's defined. Yeah. Um, it it has a longer orbit than the than the Earth, so it's one point two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a resonance there, and every six years it comes very close to the Earth, relatively speaking, in, in terms of space stuff. In, in fact, and I will correct myself. Uh, it's about five hundred meters in diameter. I misspoke. Oh, okay. Um, but it is believed that this orbit that the Bennu has could lead to a collision with the Earth in the late 22nd century. So, a really long follow-up for us. Okay. Um, our great-great-great-grandchildren or somebody okay. will follow, follow up with that. There's, there's something we're... I, I didn't really put it in the notes because it's, it's complicated. But there is a theory that the as these asteroids... Tra- like a, An asteroid like Bennu that travels closer than the asteroid belt. That is, they get closer to the sun in their orbit if they heat up it can slowly change their trajectory mm-hmm. and this is going into this idea that in the late 22nd century we may end up with with a collision and that's something that's that could come out of this out of these results so kind of in the the bucket of what do we hope to learn you talked about the minerals and chemicals that form the beginning of the solar system but knowing what is on that rock could go could become a factor in is there some sort of impact mitigation that right. could take place what what are what are near earth asteroids made of and what does that teach us about how we could steer them clear of us or blow them up or something else there are lots of ideas about there's a, that there's a movie about that i think unfortunately there is <laughs> someone today asked me if that if armageddon would be the next liftoff at the movies and i said no i don't i can't watch it again i don't think i ever want to see that movie it's again terrible so that's asteroids. That is asteroids. Um, I think it's it's you know they're they're sort of in the background of the solar system, right? They're kind of um, kind of not super exciting, but they're they're an important part, especially when you talk about near Earth objects. You know, when they at the end of the Gilligan's Island theme song, they sing and the rest. Yeah, like we don't even want to tell you about the professor and Marianne. They're just the rest of the cast. Yeah, that's, uh, the, that's the asteroids, right? <laughs> they're and the rest. It's like planets. They're awesome, and also there are asteroids around, and they're interesting, but they don't get the the press that right. that planets do because they're they are the detritus of the solar system. They just sort of, uh, as far as we know, they're they're uh, the leftovers. But what would you say the sawdust? I kinda, yeah, I kinda yeah, like that. yeah. They're like the sawdust. It's like they built the <laughs> they built the whole solar system, and there was some some junk that they didn't use or that got left behind and didn't get swept up or got swept up by jupiter into a belt maybe that's the answer it's true yeah so if you want to find show notes and links for this week you can do that on our website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 29 29 on that page you'll see some contact links you can send us an email you can follow the show on twitter at liftoff podcast Mm -hmm. jason is at jay snell 
and I am at ISMH. Until next fortnight, Jason. Until next fortnight when we'll be back in our respective homes. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. Adios. Adios.